Welcome to Pop and Lock. I'm Landry Ayers. And I'm Aaron Powell. Ripped from the headlines, John Le Carre's Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy is a tightly woven plot of intrigue, espionage, and entrapment. But George Smiley, one of the circus's top intelligence officials, is on the case of this knotted mess, pulling the threads and following them all the way to the top. Here to break down the legacy of one of the UK's most enduring characters, our Cato Institute senior fellow, Pat Eddington. Greetings. As well as Mike German, fellow with the Brennan Center for Justice's Liberty and National Security Program and author of Disrupt, Discredit, and Divide, How the New FBI Damages Democracy. Welcome to the show, Mike. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So George Smiley and the stories that he appears in don't look an awful lot like... James Bond or other espionage stories many of us have seen. So I thought maybe we'd start off with how realistic is this? How much does this portray the way that intelligence and counterintelligence actually functions in practice? I would say that on balance, um, because Lacare himself, and that's his pen name uh, for those um, who may be wondering, he was himself an officer in, in British uh, MI6, their external intelligence service, if you will. So, you know, from a, uh, the standpoint of human intelligence uh, and, and playing offense and defense, I think you'd be hard pressed uh, to find somebody, you know, better qualified in that respect. Uh, and in terms of a lot of the, the basic tradecraft things, you know, the um, smuggling documents out. I had some experience doing that when I was doing my whistleblowing thing. Um, all that kind of stuff. Um, the clandestine meeting type stuff, all of those kinds of things. Um, that's, I think at this point, you know, fairly common knowledge from a tradecraft standpoint. It was not so much back in 1973 when this book was written, but uh, I think pretty much is today. And, and I would agree with that. I, I, I think that, uh, you know, people have the idea, of course, perpetuated by the James Bond idea that uh, spying and undercover work is this very glamorous uh, uh, type of activity. But in fact, in order to be good at that, you have to be able to blend in and, and not appear threatening to anyone. And, you know, I found doing undercover criminal work that the more violent the group was, the more non-threatening you had to be. Uh, because, of course, you don't want to provoke somebody's uh, interest in proving they're tougher than you, because uh, that's uncomfortable <laughs> uh, as an undercover agent. You have enough problems to deal with uh, trying to keep everything together and gather gather the evidence you want. You don't need to be drawing unwarranted attention. I'm curious, specifically, I was thinking about uh, the 1979 BBC miniseries, which is what I watched to prepare for this episode, even though there's the wonderful Gary Oldman film um, and a lot of other adaptations. There's a, there's a really great uh, BBC radio play version that uh, I also recommend that I listened to several years ago. Um, but specifically, the BBC miniseries, a, a big theme that they hit upon is the idea of service. Um, and the sort of motivations of these characters and who they are intending to serve, whether it's, uh, you know, the the mole that we find out at the end and uh, sort of his line that I think he says is, uh, I still believe the secret services are the only true expressions of a nation's character. Um, and this is interesting because specifically Le Carre 
in 2010 was doing an interview where he was sort of criticizing the invasion of Iraq and things like that. And he likens the uh, intelligence officers that he worked with, that he sort of amalgamated and based George Smiley off of, almost like like good journalists, he says. It's about speaking truth to power um, and this sort of very clear-headed, unbiased uh, service to the nation. Is that the kind of attitude that is still being cultivated in today's uh, intelligence? Or is there, like we sort of see in a lot of different you know, administrative positions, a sort of political cessation of that? And is there any sort of bleed through of that into those sectors? So I, I would have to say that certainly in, uh, in a CIA context, but also kind of the broader U.S. intelligence community context, and then I'll talk about the, the British side of this in a second, um, that I think that idea of objectivity has always been a little bit of a myth, not entirely, but a little bit of a myth. And you go back to guys like Sherman Kent, you know, way back in the day, um, you know, immediately post-World War II and early Cold War. Um, there was an effort to try to cultivate that kind of an ethic, um, much more so in, in what we call the director of intelligence uh, at, at the CIA. This is literally like the think tank component of the CIA. When, when you're talking about actual director of operations officers. I mean, here now I'm talking about the actual human spies or the, or the people that basically try to run uh, agent networks, if you will, overseas. Um, you know, when you teach people how to lie um, and how lying is so central to the success of the job, I think it's naive to believe that they're just going to be able to flick that off like a light switch when it comes to how they deal with, uh, with people in their own country. Uh, in our case, you know, people in Congress and so on and so forth. So I, I think there's always been, there's always been a tension there, uh, and and always, in my judgment at least, a fundamental uh, ethical dilemma. You know, it, it's one thing to basically take uh, imagery intelligence, signals intelligence, and whatever human intelligence you can gather, and sit down and analyze that the same way that you know uh, our scholars at at Cato, you know, analyze what's available publicly, right? That's one thing. It's another thing entirely uh, to try to, you know, essentially penetrate somebody else's networks physically, right, and recruit people and run them uh, on the basis essentially of both self-deception uh, and and the deception of uh, of the hostile uh, actors that you're working against. So I, there's always, in my judgment, at least, there's always been a tension there. And, you know, especially doing criminal work as an investigator for the FBI, you, you plumb motive uh, uh, because it's an essential element of, of most crimes um, and particularly working undercover, trying to figure out how to get close to people. Um, and I think it's a mistake to assume that human beings operate with just one motive. And, you know, certainly that that concept of service and the idea of patriotism, I'm, I'm sure, most people who go into government work of any kind have uh, that motive as part of their interest in pursuing that line of work. But, you know, I also was, you know, very much a adrenaline junkie and, and went to the FBI because I couldn't see sitting behind a desk and doing lawyer work as, as something that would interest me. So um, I think there are a multiplicity of, of motives at any one time. And I think part of the problem that we we see and i think part of why uh lacare 
I think is um, appreciated in the intelligence and law enforcement community is because it it does show that ambiguity. And, you know, these are very much monocultures to, to a large degree. And, and they have this very rigorous application and security screening process that keeps them as monocultures. And because they have a peek behind the curtain and they can see secrets that the rest of the public doesn't have access to, it's very easy to start believing that you know better, that you know better than the democratic public about what is right and what is wrong and what is necessary and, and uh, what, what should be done for the good of all. And that is often the path that leads to really dangerous and, and reckless and uh, unhelpful types of activities. And in the, uh, in the movie, uh, the 2011 movie with Gary Oldman, you have that sequence that really kind of underscores, you know, what Mike just talked about, where you have Percy Owlline, who's, you know, now essentially maneuvered himself into being the new control. Um, and that, that bureaucratic gamesmanship, that's spot on. That's totally spot. That's one of the most authentic things about the entire book, just period. But you have Owlline, and then I think it was Roy Bland who was sitting there talking to uh, Lacan uh, of the Treasury, uh, about this extremely expensive safe house they were using for this witchcraft project and so on and so forth. And, uh, and as Lacan basically tries to, you know, question the expense, um, uh, Bland just, you know, blows up about essentially, you know, we're all that's standing between you and World War III and so on and so forth, right? So that, that very self-righteous attitude of, you know, we know best that Mike just talked about, that's very much spot on. And it's well conveyed, well conveyed, especially in the movie. I wanted to pick up on something Mike said about, you mentioned ambiguity. And so Dr. No, the first James Bond film, came out a couple of years before Le Carre's first major novel, The Spy Who Came In From a Cold, hit. And the the difference between those two portrayals of espionage is rather stark. And one of the interesting things about The Spy Who Came From the Cold, which is a absolutely phenomenal novel is the ambiguity of it is is that this is it's kind of tired men playing a game that seems almost without purpose and i wonder about that and also in light of tinker taylor how much like in lake Ray's fiction it feels like these are characters who are they're engaged in intelligence gamesmanship against each other but the the actual intelligence itself the you know like we've we've got information about troop movements or about plans seems periphery to the game at best like this is just about one upping each other and so i wondered how much of that is is true of like what it's like inside of intelligence gathering whether that's in the criminal arena or in, you know, the, the more espionage arena where it's about the people engaged in it are about the game itself and versus like the actual value of what it is that they're pursuing. I, I you know, again, I think that's, and, and I know that at least at one point, uh, Le Carre said that his, um, his writing about George Smiley was an antidote to the James Bond version of, of what the spycraft is. Um, and, and I, I think you're right. I think that you know, 
they say that that when Truman first wanted to have a post-war intelligence agency, really what he wanted was a global news clipping service, you know, that he wanted that information and kind of what Lucaria said about, you know, being just sort of high powered, effective journalists providing information where very quickly after the CIA was created, it took on this covert action role that is somewhat conflicting with the, the, uh, the intelligence gathering uh, 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 mission. And, and I do think that there is a lot of, of spy versus spy, uh, uh, gamesmanship going on that really has nothing to do with whether we're getting the ac accurate information. And in fact, you know, the, the intelligence community becomes a warning system rather than providing information that policymakers can make better decisions. And it's just constantly warning, 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 warning. And policymakers can't really do anything with that, right? If I have 10 warnings of possible harm to come, how do I know what needs immediate attention? And I think that's what the statement that uh, George Bush made after he was given the Al-Qaeda briefing before 9-11, where you know, his response reportedly was, okay, now you've covered your ass, <laughs> right? That, that this becomes just, well, we want to be able to go back and say we warned about every possible thing so that we can say we did our job. And it's no longer about actually providing an accurate picture for, for policymakers to, to make wise decisions. Rather, it's put in a way to that empowers the agencies, that that becomes the primary mission, empower and protect the agency from any criticism. So one of my favorite phrases is the bureaucratic self-licking ice cream cone, right? So this is, um, and to kind of get directly at, at what you were asking about previously, Aaron, this, um, this idea of competition among these three-letter agencies in the United States, and I'm sure it was the same way to some degree between MI5 and MI6, um, is a very real thing. And, and what's, you know, what's really kind of been fascinating to me in the course of doing all this research for this, this book that I've been working on is looking at how much effort Army intelligence and Navy intelligence and the FBI expended trying to prevent the CIA from being created in the first place. <laughs> they, they, really, they really spent a lot of time you know, trying to uh, talk Truman out of that, and, and they failed in the end. And the thing about the agency, of course, is that its origins uh, under uh, Wild Bill Donovan was absolutely as a covert action organization. I mean, that's what the, the Office of Strategic Services was all about. Yes, they were supposed to be collecting intel, but their big thing and the thing they preferred to do and the thing that Donovan preferred to do was to operate behind enemy lines, whether it was the German lines or Japanese lines or whatever, and blow stuff up. I mean, it's just really that simple, uh, you know, going after uh, things of that nature. And if you collected intel along the way, that's great. Um, but it was that action-oriented part of it uh, that really animated Donovan. And it was that aspect of it, the, the agency's ability to um, engage in those kinds of covert actions that became, uh, I would essentially say, an addictive policy drug for successive presidents. Uh, it was definitely the case under Eisenhower. Um, John Kennedy wound up with a real pile of stuff as a result of what Eisenhower handed him with these Bay of Pigs plans that they went ahead with anyway, when it was clear it was going to be uh, a disaster. Um, 
on through, let's say, you know, things like the the Phoenix program in Vietnam and and so on and so forth. So it's inevitably been the covert action arm of the CIA that has gotten the agency into trouble over and over and over again. And that's that's what Truman was lamenting, you know, toward the end of his life, especially. Uh, that's just not what I had in mind, essentially, is what he was telling people. And uh, that that continues to, you know, be a problem that we have today. Uh, you know, you've got the agency out there, uh, along with the military, but the agency very heavily operating a drone program, a lethal drone program. Uh, and to quote former CI director, former NSA director, Michael Hayden, uh, quote, we kill people using metadata, end quote. Well, you wind up killing an awful lot of innocent people, uh, you know, when you do that. And it just kind of underscores, I think, the mindset that we've been talking about that, you know, they, they get to play God and they get an awful lot of money to do it. Uh, and the result, as we have seen, especially in the so-called war on terror era, has been just a disaster for the United States, reputationally, especially. So you, you mentioned like the covert operations. And so Lake Ray has another novel in the George Smiley series, The Looking Glass War, which is basically about people who have no idea what they're doing in covert operations, trying to pull one off and it ends poorly. And it's, it's a another terrific I keep saying terrific novels. I think Lake Ray might be my favorite author. So I'll just like state right now all of his novels are terrific. But um, but it makes me wonder, like, so we, you know, espionage fiction um and and fiction about undercover and intelligence gathering is very popular because it feels like very cool, right? Like it's exciting and it's and and like the you know, the the playing it out is cool. And I wonder like how much does that sense of this stuff is just cool factor into the way that the people who are actually doing it approach it. Cause I'm thinking of, you mentioned like all of the, the, the undercover or the operational stuff, but like Alan Dulles constantly as director of CIA was just like, well, what we should do is we should drop expatriates in behind enemy lines in order to disrupt things. And almost without fail, they would get dropped in, parachuted in, and then they would just disappear because they either ran off with the money or they got captured and killed or whatever. But it felt like kind of like reading that history of the CIA, especially in the 50s and 60s, feels like a bunch of boys who have a bunch of fun stuff to do and are trying to do fun stuff. And then on the FBI side, like Hoover had a slightly different approach, but it a lot of it ends up feeling like just kind of, we've got cool tools to use and we're making it up as we go along. I think in the beginning, um, you know, at, at, at CIA, that emphasis on covert action, um, certainly in the 50s and 60s, it overshadowed almost anything analytical, not entirely, but, but, but almost so. And it, and it became, you know, a real problem. I, I can only speak for myself in terms of how I felt, you know, when I, when I got the job in 1988, which was literally at the tail end of the cold war. But, uh, the idea for me to be able to sit there as a 25 year old and control a multi-hundred million dollar satellite and point it at places on the earth, uh, outside the United States in order to take lots of pictures and then sit down and figure out what was going on. Yeah, that was pretty. That was just pretty damn cool. There's no question about it. It was. It was a tremendous amount of fun. My first three years there were just amazing. They were just, you know, life changing in that respect. Um, but you know, once you're inside an organization long enough and you begin to kind of understand the culture, uh, the monoculture that that uh, that Mike so uh, eloquently spoke of, that's when you begin to see the warts. That's when you begin to really kind of understand 
um, you know, what the priorities are um, uh, and, and what they should be and are not. Um, and I think, you know, when we had a single monolithic or relatively monolithic target like the Soviet Union, it, it did in some ways make things easier. Um, it made it easier to focus. Um, I always knew essentially what I was supposed to be doing. I had a whole series of, of uh, Soviet installations and, and military units that I was responsible for monitoring. And, um, you know, we had a, a very, very detailed system of collection for doing that kind of thing. Uh, and that's the world of technical intelligence, though. And I think that's... I... I'm reluctant to use the word it's a cleaner form of intelligence gathering, but I think in many respects it is. Um, that's not to say that it isn't subject to potential deception and denial type operations. It's harder to do that with imagery than it is with signals intelligence, but it can be done. Whereas I've always felt that in, in the human intelligence world, you are dealing with a hall of mirrors. And, and that's, why, that's why I admire that Mike spent so much time you know, in the trenches trying to, um, trying to do this in the criminal world in, in, in an undercover kind of capacity, because you're, you're doing nothing but dealing with different individuals with different motives, different agendas, maybe some of them overlap, but trying to figure out essentially who's lying to you, uh, to the extent to which they're lying to you, all the rest of that. That's, in my judgment, an infinitely harder business to be in. Uh, than to sit around and, and look at satellite imagery or even or even drone footage or you know anything like that. So it's uh, if you're in technical intelligence, I always think people feel like that was really cool and you know and it was. But it's the human the human side of it. I think is just so much harder to work. And I think Lakari does a great job of bringing that out. You know this whole issue of Ricky Tar. You know uh, is this guy has he been turned? You know um, all this stuff. It's Hall of Mirrors is, I think, the best way for me to kind of describe how I feel about it. And, and I think that's true. And, and I should say that I have a tremendous uh, respect for people who do undercover work in, in the espionage field are going into foreign countries, because while, you know, certainly the, the risks were as high or perhaps even higher when you're dealing with a criminal organization that would, you know, immediately take some violent action against you if they found out who you were, where perhaps a, a foreign nation might just, uh, you know, embarrass your, your nation and, and send you home uh, never to return. Uh, uh, um, but, it, you know, obviously there is risk there and the tools that the state has are so much stronger than what the criminals have as far as trying to use their police powers to uncover the identity uh, and and also the length of time. I mean, for most of my undercover cases, if I spent two hours with the, the criminal element, uh, that was preceded by two hours of preparation with the case agent and, and the other agents working on the task force and the surveillance team, and and then two hours of debriefing afterwards. So it wasn't that constant pressure of maintaining cover. Um, but it, you know, I I think I think part of what makes it interesting is that you are dealing with this mix of motives where you know, say we would have sort of, uh, have a big meeting going on where I'm going to be engaged in some kind of criminal activity in a dangerous context. So we have surveillance up and we're watching this person that I'm meeting with all day long and we can see him 
go to Home Depot and, uh, you know, go and have lunch with, with a friend and do a couple of other things before our meeting. And I get there and say, hey, you know, what have you been up to today? Uh, haven't left the house, <laughs> which I know is a lie. But now I have to figure out, OK, why is he lying? You know, did he pick up surveillance and he's testing me? You know, what is going on? So you, even in that much smaller context, you do have that hall of mirrors that what is it that I'm dealing with here and, and how do I make sense of the fragmentary pieces of knowledge that I have when I have to recognize that my bias is that he's doing something dangerous to me because if I don't keep that bias, uh, my, my guard will go down and, and that's not good. Uh, so you know, you're not paranoid if somebody really is out to get you. <laughs> <laughs> You know the the one nit that I have uh, with uh, with the book uh, and with and with the movie, the 2011 movie, and this is like you have to be an intelligence guy to kind of appreciate this to a certain degree, I think. But do you remember the scene when there uh, when when witchcraft is essentially revealed um, in terms of that that naval exercise document uh, that they got, and they were basically you know Smiley was like you know could be gold dust, but, you know, and, and so on and so forth. And of course the, the mole himself, Hayden is in the room when all this is going on. And all I could think was, well, what did GCHQ have to say about the exercise? <laughs> what did the signals, what did the signals intelligence guys have to say about what happened during that exercise? What kind of radar emissions were picked up and what was the comms traffic like and all the rest of that. And for me, that was like, that was the missing piece in terms of confirming or denying really whether or not there was any kind of value there. So that's that's like a genuine like professional nit that I have with how that with how the book unfolded. That just kind of gets to the um, the total focus essentially on on the human aspect of this and the human intelligence aspect of it. But you have lots of ways that you can uncover human spies. Uh, and the most famous case that we know of that's public, of course, is the Rosenbergs, uh, and that was of course accomplished after the fact, through the decryption of, of the Soviet, or partial decryption of the Soviet Venona. So this leads into something that I found curious in, so I, as I was researching for this episode, I came across the CIA has an in-house journal called Studies in Intelligence. And I think it was in 2018, they published a review of the Gary Oldman film of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, which is is very interesting, and we'll put a note to it, a link to it in the show notes. Uh, it's worth reading. But they point out one of the changes that that movie makes to the original material, which is there's a scene in the Gary Oldman one where Smiley tells Peter Gwillem, who's like his right hand man, his his Watson, um, that they might. It's possible that what they're doing is going to be found out because they're they're investigating this mole, you know, on the down low. And to to clear up any loose ends that might be out there, and in a change from the novel. So in the novel, Peter Willem is is straight, and in later novels has a family, um, has a wife and kids. But in this movie, he is in a homosexual relationship, and so there's a scene where he goes and basically kicks out his boyfriend, you know, because if this is exposed, it's it's a hook, and I. I wondered about that in light of what you guys were talking about, about kind of the focusing in on minorities and whatnot, like how that, so the, the, so I should note that the, the CIA journal takes offense at this change and they say 
Quote, there's no context, no follow-up, and no apparent significance to this revelation. It's difficult not to interpret this change as gestures to political correctness, which to me seemed to entirely miss the point of this scene. Um, but but the way that minorities get uh, treated within intelligence and law enforcement communities, because I know like the, the, the FBI for a long time, if you were found out to be gay, you were, you were fired um, in... In the CIA, it was a similar thing because it was seen as something where, you know, that could be leverage used against you to flip you, um, to turn you, to get information out of you, blackmail you, and so on. Like, how does that sort of stuff play out in in these kinds of scenarios, both in terms of, like, from the counterintelligence, but also in terms of getting people to turn on their employers to become double agents because you have this leverage over them? So that that entire issue of homosexuality um, being something that would get you kicked off the federal payroll um, is directly tied to Executive Order uh, 10-450, which was uh, Eisenhower's update to Truman's infamous uh, government employee loyalty program executive order. And the the formal adding, essentially, of that language about... um, uh, sexual activity, um, and, and so on and so forth, that became essentially an excuse to go through and conduct anti-gay witch hunts throughout the entire federal government. Um, and that's something that continued, you know, literally for decades. And because it was a, um, uh, was viewed as, um, disqualifying from an employment standpoint, it then of course becomes, um, a, a place whereby, you know, you have a vulnerability, a counterintelligence vulnerability. And in the case of Britain, homosexuality was actually illegal. It was actually literally against the law uh, for, for a good period of time. And that's, you know, and I understood that instantly when I saw that scene um, uh, that, you know, Smiley was trying to make sure that, that Gwillem did not literally go to jail, not simply for going, you know, into MI5 to try to liberate, or MI6 to try to uh, liberate information to expose them all, Uh, but because of his sexual orientation was discovered, he would definitely go to jail. Uh, So this, this is something that was absolutely a thing, at least up through the Clinton administration, uh, until you began to kind of see, uh, you know, a change. And of course, uh, on the uh, on the national security side, kind of the, the 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 DOD side, this is when we begin to see this "don't ask, don't tell" bastardization policy, as I like to call it, rather than you know just confronting it you know directly. Uh, but this is when things you know begin to change. Now, I I don't know whether or not this is necessarily still something of you know overall counterintelligence concern at CIA. I tend to doubt it's not as much of one. Uh, as as it once was, I can't speak to the bureau. I, I, Mike Mike would be better positioned to uh, to say that. But if, if somebody, I could see, I could see if somebody was in um, in a a closeted gay relationship, but actually had uh, a heterosexual family. Um, that that would create a blackmail situation that could be a counterintelligence issue. Um, but I, I think a, a an openly gay relationship, you know, now I would tend to doubt would that that would be as big a deal from a counterintelligence standpoint. I think they're much more concerned, always going to be much more concerned about any kind of close and continuing contact with foreign nationals. And, you know, I, I, I found the, uh, the CIA criticism, uh, 
kind of laughable. I mean, on the one hand, that's absolutely correct. This was a, an error towards political correctness in that it was political, politically accurate, right? That, that it was in, in a very, you know, you're a filmmaker and you're trying to turn this wonderful book that has all these twists and turns into a, an hour and a half. You know, how do you convey something that the audience will immediately understand what you're getting at and, and show that bias within the intelligence community? And, uh, and I agree completely with Pat that, that by the late 90s, that had, had pretty much gone. But there was a period where, you know, as Pat used that term, the self-licking ice cream cone, where, you know, what, what the security establishment would say is, well, we don't care if you're in a, a, a homosexual relationship. We're just afraid that it might be used against you. So that's why it becomes an issue for us, because it where it's like, OK, you, you just you know, if if you made it that it didn't matter, then it couldn't be used against them. You know, it's like you have to decide one or the other. Either it's an issue from a counterintelligence perspective or it's not. But you can't you, you can't sort of exonerate yourself by saying, well, you know, the, the bad guys might target you because of this. So we have to treat you like a pariah. No, that's not really what's happening here. You know, and, you know, to the extent any illicit relationship, heterosexual or homosexual, could be fodder for somebody to uh, blackmail you. Uh, you know, the, certainly the, the sex of the person shouldn't matter. And I don't think does anymore. I think people are, are past that in, uh, at the FBI. I'm curious because this is sort of coming up between what Pat was talking about um, and some things that you were mentioning, Mike, uh, specifically talking about the experience of being undercover, but also the, you know, being behind enemy lines. And we've talked a lot about what the intelligence officers, you know, the people who are, quote unquote, on our side, um, are are sort of doing day to day and what their experience is like and their motivations. But it's really curious because this story specifically was influenced not just, you know, on Le Carre's experience in, you know, doing that, but also it was born specifically out of the, uh, you know, incident with Kim Philby and the Cambridge Five, um, something that really happened where Kim Philby, a double agent for the Soviet Union who had been acting as an intelligence offer for uh, the UK, flipped and, uh, you know, obviously blew a bunch of people's cover, including uh, John Le Carre, who at the time, you know, had to leave yeah, his I just, position. That's, that's so, the silver lining, is if Kim Philby hadn't done what he did, we wouldn't have all these novels. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he really did us a favor there. Um, but uh, but Bill uh, Hayden, for instance, he was undercover for decades, for a long period of time. I, I obviously I don't know how much of that, you know, he was, you know, getting breaks and, you know, having two hours to meet with somebody else and two hours, you know, two hours on, two hours off. You know, does he get a 15 minute smoke break? I don't know. But what is what is that experience like? What is it like? to be the one lying for that extended period of time? And who is the kind of person 
that becomes specifically a double agent. Like that takes, I think, an extra level of ability to sort of regulate the and and manage the persona that you are, you know, trying to present to someone because not only specifically in intelligence, you're trying to be the person on the inside for one, but you're managing secrets for both sides. Uh, what is that like? Well, I think that, you know, one of the things that, that Tinker Tailor to- uh, Soldier Spy does is really kind of convey um, that tension, essentially, and, and the level of, of skill. And, and the thing is, you know, Colin Firth plays the character that we're talking about here, um, Bill Hayden, the double agent, who I think in many, many respects really was kind of based on Kim Philby. You know, Philby went to work for the NKVD, the, the Soviet uh, intelligence service back then, I think at least as early as 1940. So he was, he was basically on their payroll for almost a quarter of a century. And, you know, he was suspected on the basis of, of uh, uh, Guy Burgess and, and Donald McLean, uh, two other members of the so-called Cambridge Five, uh, defecting uh, in 1951, if I, if I remember correctly. And Philby was subjected to this, you know, uh, examination, even separated from the service. But he was cleared in 1955. And then he goes back to work uh, undercover for MI6, basically uh, posing as a journalist. Right. So I, I think someone who is successful um, uh, in, in beating the system, if you will, and, and being a mole. A, being a really good actor undoubtedly helps the, the ability to kind of. Uh, have uh, two personalities really helps. But the other thing that, that plays into this, and I'm thinking specifically here about the Aldrich James episode at the CIA, um, is just the, the, the lousy counterintelligence uh, tradecraft, you know, the, the sloppiness of it, the, the failure to kind of look at it. And, and I would also say in Ames' case, uh, the insane reliance on the polygraph. Right. I mean, we, we know on the basis of science now, I mean, almost actually it is 20 years ago, um, that the National Academies, you know, actually looked at this entire question. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's like an electronic Ouija board, right? I mean, it's a, a good polygrapher can get you to confess to things that you never did. Um, but that's much more of a human element, right? I mean, sure, the technology is kind of hovering there in the background the whole time. Um, but a cop that's really good, you know, at interrogation can get people to confess they can they can they can break them down you know and and they can do it in you know in various ways i mean a lot of times you see like this good cop bad cop kind of thing my favorite cop show of the 1990s um hands down was nypd blue and of course andy sippelwitz is my favorite character and i'm ashamed to say that i cheered every time he beat the crap out of a suspect because in most times they, they really did seem to deserve it but that isn't that isn't how good interrogation takes place as, as Mike knows far better than I do. Um, it, but it's that ability to, um, number one, live kind of a double life. But I think you also, at some level, have to kind of count on the system you know, to miss stuff. And, and when you understand the counterintelligence procedures, policies, practices of the organization that you're in, obviously it gives you an enormous advantage in terms of being able to beat the system. So uh, but in the case of the Cambridge Five, when we talk about motivations, uh, I think they were a, they were like a lot of people 
uh, back in the day where there was this insane romanticism um, about, uh, about the Soviet Union, about the Soviet model, uh, and all the rest of that, and, and this idea that somehow the West was decadent, fall, and all the rest of that. And it's not as if, you know, plenty of stories about Soviet gulags uh, were not coming out in this period of time. You know, so I, it, to me, it's, it's impossible that Philby and, and the rest of those guys were not aware of those things, right? So I think it's also the ability to kind of deceive yourself, you know, about what it is you're doing and, and why you're doing it. You know, from my experience, I, I mean, I think part of what happens in the intelligence community is, it, it, is there's a tendency to paint everything black or white. These are either good guys or bad guys. And not recognize that there's good and bad in every system and in, in, in every culture and that the people who are expressing some uh, animosity towards the West are not necessarily wrong in that criticism or, or uh, somehow criminally dangerous uh, because they have these ideas. Um, and you know, particularly, I, mean, I was sent my first undercover assignment in to violent neo-Nazi group, right? Yeah, you know, when, when you're painting with the black and white, you know, they definitely fall on the, on the bad guy <laughs> side of things. But, you know, it, it, experiencing that where, you know, these were people who had very deeply held beliefs and uh, you know, were trying to change society in a way that fit along with their beliefs. And the vast majority of them didn't engage in criminal activity and, and, and encouraged me to avoid the people I was hanging out with because they did. Uh, so, you know, I think gaining that perspective is really Im important, but it's easy to ignore when, uh, you, you know, I mean, part of kind of the human element of it was as, as one of the instructors who, you know, in my career, I spent a lot of time doing training for a, other agents, the way he would explain undercover work to new trainees is he would say, look, your job is to befriend, uh, befriend people, do what's necessary to gain their trust and then betray them. <laughs> you know, don't, don't paint any, you know, lovely pictures about what you're doing because it'll just confuse things. You know, that's your job. And, you know, when, when you, can paint everybody as black or white, it's much easier to do that kind of betrayal. And, you know, when that flips to the other side and say somebody coming up in the system and, uh, you know, I, I got a, a Penguin paperback uh, that was published that had a forward uh, written by Lecrae uh, that was really interesting because he talks about the, the Cambridge Five and sort of how he viewed it. Um, and, you know, basically, and talks about the, the way Philby was close to uh, James Angleton at the CIA, who, who, once he realized he had been duped by Philby, went on a, on a mission to find the moles within the CIA and in many ways crippled the CIA for a number of years because of these internal investigations where, again, it's looking for somebody who, who you have in your mind this picture of this very bad guy and not recognizing that that's not really the way it is. And, you know, it makes me think of a uh, scandal within uh, the FBI where uh, the uh, Chinese espionage 
unit uh, found out that there was an, a leak of FBI information that was going to Chinese intelligence and did you know one of those insider threat and uh, focused on a Chinese American agent and and ruined her career again based on a polygraph which you know even as criminal investigators we know that it's it's not admissible because it's not accurate right it doesn't really have enough accuracy for us to say that this really works uh, when it turned out it was a very prominent supervisor in the program who was considered the best, I mean, would have been like this Hayden character, you know, he that uh, that had an illicit relationship with one of his sources uh, where the, the leak was apparently coming from. And it turned out that the number two person in the national Chinese espionage program was also having an illicit relationship with this same informant. Uh, so, you know, that kind of you know, how do you even get your head around, number one, what what their motives were and, and you know, was this just sex and, and didn't involve any kind of intentional uh, espionage, you know, moving the information and, and, you know, they're alleged that she would simply pilfer his his briefcase uh, when when he was napping after their interlude. You know, who knows? And and how do you peel it back now? This person has been, you know, the number one person on Chinese espionage at the FBI for a decade or more. How do you then assess what's real and what isn't real? And this uh, asset, you know, maybe wasn't, you know, was considered a prized asset. But now do we have to wonder whether any of that was true? And how do we unwind all of this? Uh, it, you know, it. it it's unfortunately real life, you know, and Lecrae does a really good job of expressing it in an artistic form. But, uh, it, you know, it, uh, what is that? Uh, uh, once you practice to deceive, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I mean, it's, it's just inherent in a system that is by all measures anti-democratic. Right. I mean, just the very notion of the secrecy that this type of intelligence gathering demands is poisonous to a democratic society. You know, it can only exist if there's public knowledge. We can only make decisions as a as a group and particularly when they feel the. Uh, they have the authority to, as one FBI training slide said, bend or suspend the law in pursuit of their mission. It, you end up in in a lot of problems, and and I think that's certainly you know the response to nine eleven and the great expansion of this secret part of our government and the impunity in which they act to where there wasn't any hesitation to having these very prominent heads of our intelligence agencies tell absolute falsehoods in public about. The activities that they were engaged in, whether it was the warrantless wiretapping program or uh, the torture program, to where how, how how can the public express their will in how they want the government run when there's so much information being spread by the intelligence agencies that we're depending on to give us that true and verifiable information that we can make good policy choices from.
and what Mike has, has just described with respect to what happened, and that was that was the Los Angeles field office, right, Mike? Is that yeah? Um, that episode with with Chinese intelligence, you know, the the American traitor was was a white guy, right? And what did the bureau do? They they focused on the Chinese agent, and so we see this we see this today, and this is something that Mike and I have spent a huge amount of time working on. Uh, is this whole China initiative that the FBI has, has had underway since uh, 2018, right? And so the presumption is, ultimately, if you have a relationship with China, and especially if you are of Chinese heritage, uh, we better take an extra look at you, and maybe a lot more than an extra look for you. And it's, of course, turned into a giant you know, racial profiling disaster. A number of court cases now uh, that they've either outright lost or had to drop because of, of the bogus nature of it. Um, but that's not a new phenomenon, you know, I mean, uh, th- this racial and ethnic aspect of it, obviously it was huge and continues, frankly, uh, in, in the post nine 11 era targeting Arab and Muslim Americans, right. Again, just on that basis, um, thinking that anybody is going to be, uh, an Al Qaeda supporter if they come from that community, which of course is insane, completely, completely nuts. Um, but that's been a hallmark of American intelligence, you know, for the last hundred years, quite frankly. Um, you know, when you look at how they, they handled, uh, German Americans and especially Japanese Americans, you know, during World War II. So that, that's an aspect of the business that's missing essentially from, from Lacare's novels, at least the one that we're talking about, um, because these were all pretty much Caucasian folks. It's, it's a very, it's a very ideologically based, um, frame, essentially, that Lacare is using. And of course, that's directly connected to the time. Thanks for listening. As always, the best way to get more Pop and Lock content is to follow us on Twitter. You can find us at the handle at Pop and Lock Pod. That's Pop, the letter N, Lock, with an E like the philosopher, Pod. Make sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen, and please rate and review us if you like the show. We look forward to unraveling your favorite show or movie next time. Pop and Lock is a project of Libertarianism.org, is produced by me, Landry Ayers, and is co-hosted by myself and our director and editor, Aaron Ross Powell. To learn more, visit us on the web at Libertarianism.org. 